Audience, I'm a fanboy. You're about to hear how many of Damien's books I have listened to. And Damien is in for a lot of questions if I can remember what was in each of these books. Thank you for joining me, David Olney. How are you? Very well, thank you, Tim. I'm sitting here in another cold night in Adelaide. It is rather cold. However, we're joined from the opposite side of the earth in a different hemisphere <laughs> where it is much, much warmer, funnily enough, than Australia. We're joined with Damien Lewis. And some of you listeners may be aware of his work. He's certainly not the actor from Homeland. He is much more intelligent. So thank you very much for joining us, Damien. Yeah, no worries, guys. It's great to be with you. And it's, uh, yeah, like you say, it's a lovely sunny day here in, um, here in Old England. What a strange concept. Warm there, <laughs> cold here. I'm confused. <laughs> well, yes, David, you have read uh, a number of books. So I'll, I'll go down a little list that you sent me. We have SAS Shadow Raiders, the ultra secret mission that changed the course of World War II. SAS Ghost Patrol, the ultra-secret unit that posed as Nazi stormtroopers. SAS Italian Job, hunting Hitler's nukes, the secret race to stop the Nazi bomb. Zero Six Bravo, 60 Special Forces. 100,000 Enemy, the explosive true story. The Nazi Hunters. SAS Great Escape, seven great escapes made by real Second World War heroes. And Churchill's Secret Warriors, the explosive true story of the special force desperados of World War II. Damien, have I read about half what you've written? Yeah, that's a pretty good list. Yeah, there's probably another half you could add on to that, but you, you started off pretty well there. There's some, there's some real classics in that list, let's put it that way. And audience, you will of course hear here there is a trend that the SAS pops up in nearly all of these. And it's not accidental, you know, having done work for Special Operations Command here in Australia with Australian SAS and Commando. What grabbed me with Damien's books and the main reason I was so excited to invite Damien on is because there are so many parallels between the experiences he writes about of the SAS during World War II and even interestingly when he writes about the SBS in Iraq and the little bit I've learned that current experience in Afghanistan and Iraq still looks you know, kind of similar. So, Damien, probably as a really obvious first question, where does the interest come from in this period? Was it always there or it grew once you'd written, you know, written one book and turned into sort of a, you know, a, a condition and an addiction? Yeah, it kind of grew out of my career as a war reporter. So I spent 20 years running around some insane parts of the world reporting on various wars and just by chance, one of the guys that who was kind of my my second camera stroke security guy happened to be a former Kiwi SAS guy, in fact, a guy called Mike. And, um, you know, we were in the Sudan and, you know, sat around the campfire at night. He was telling stories about not so much his own career, but more about some other Afghan and Iraq operations, but also about some of the World War II stuff. And And like you say, the amazing thing is that so much of what they did and pioneered in World War II still informs what they do today. So the tactics, te techniques and procedures that were developed back then, you know, between 1941 and 45, a lot of it still is studied today and used today. And that's a fascinating, you know, through, 
through flow of, of, of history into into modern, modern day SF operations, which the more you look into it, the more the more fascinating it becomes. And, it, and it's, it's it's kind of deeper than that. It's also the characters as well. You know, the the, the those those individuals who formed special forces in World War Two were Mavericks, free thinkers individuals they couldn't fit it in to most normal units that's why they were in these special operations units and that's those were the people the special operations commanders saw and it's exactly the same kind of individual who works well today in in the special forces that we have doing operations all over the world yeah it's quite incredible today to see that most of the people that get in these units probably wouldn't stay if they couldn't get through selection they want to be one place and if they can't be in that place and of course that poses one of the constant problems for special operations is that the career span for people is relatively short you know either their body's very tired or they can't do what they love or if they're an officer they get to the point where they don't want promotion because within conventional army they will have to do conventional things and the boredom will probably send them around the twist yeah absolutely you know it, it's it's fascinating if you talk to pretty much anyone who's been through modern day selection. And I know I, I still know and work with two or three World War II veterans from, from the SAS and SBS who are still with us in their late nineties, obviously. And, and one guy in particular reads all my World War II manuscripts to, to just give feedback and, you know, let me know that it's, it, it's captured the essence in the moment. But if you talk to any of these guys and you say, you know, what gets you through selection? If you get them to talk honestly, they'll, they'll all say, at the end of the day, it's not the physical side. It's not the fitness. It's what's in your head. It's strength of strength of mind, strength of personality, and it's the ability for your your mental fitness to push you one step beyond what your body thinks it can do. And so yeah. you end up with a very specific set of individuals who the one unifying thread is that mindset. It's what the, is what they've got in their psychology. Yeah, it's interesting. Eric Greitens, um, an Oxford PhD who became a SEAL, and literally just got through buds, I think two weeks before 9-11. So went into the reinforcement cycle, you know, the full training cycle, knowing they'd deploy the minute they were finished. But he writes about Hell Week and makes the point to his boat crew, you know, they can't kill us. They need us intact, which means all we have to do is hold it together. This is a mental game because physically they need us the top of our game. And I think he's written about it more clearly. And he's one of the interesting people who five I think all but one of his boat crew got through first time and the guy didn't, didn't get through because he broke his leg. That guy came back six months later and got his whole boat crew through, which is almost unheard of, mm. you know, for buds. So the impact it made for a young officer to explain, hang on, this is not physical guys. Stop thinking it is. They need mm. us to be able to function. And you see that, you know, the pressure is high, but the mental games are incredible because that's what's going to catch people off when they're not getting positive feedback. Mm. That's the incredible yep. thing about this world. So little positive feedback. You have to take responsibility for what you do, take pride in what you do, and get enough satisfaction to keep maintaining your level of motivation, which makes... Yeah the historical link so interesting because you go, you could take any of these guys out of 1941 and put them through selection today. And if anything, they'd have a bigger smile because of the improvement in weapons and body armor. Yeah, absolutely. I would imagine it's the same with Aussie SAS and Kiwi SAS, but one of the biggest killers on selection is what they call the sickener. And the sickener is when, you know, you're on whatever it might be, let's say it's endurance, you know, 35 or, or more miles across the, across the mountains and you get to the end of it 
and then it's not the end. That's the sickener. They, yeah, they I think here it's called walkabout. Have a brew, and then they say, no, 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 we're going on. And that's the sickener. And those people who, who give up then, uh, obviously they're returned to unit. And those who actually, you know, look, not smile through the sickener, but let's say grit their teeth and have the mental strength to continue, realise the sickener is the sickener. It doesn't last for more than a kilometre or so. It's just to weed out those who, who, who will bin themselves. So, yeah, yeah it's... Um, here it's called walkabout and it's in the sort of Western Australian desert. Yeah. And yeah. It's bad enough, but the whole point is they can't have you go down with dehydration to the point where you end up with damaged kidneys. So just, you know, keep moving, hydrate sensibly and more than likely enough people get through without being injured that it clearly works. Yeah. And it's fascinating to kind of study and read about how they put all of these tests but also, you know, this this esprit de corps together, you know, in in the in the North African desert back in 40, 40 and 41. I mean, it's, you know, they were making it up from scratch. I mean, there's a really fantastic scene where, you know, Sterling, David Sterling, founder of the S, well, you could argue the founder of the SAS. We can yeah, we'll get into that. that in a minute. Yeah. Yeah. You know, there's a really fascinating scene where he's there with his first 60 recruits, most of whom have come from the commandos uh, and they're all volunteers, obviously. And they're in, they're in the, the North African desert, and they've got nothing. There's no camp, there's nothing. And one of the guys says, you know, sir, what do we do? There's nothing here. And he said, well, that's the first lesson. You go and steal it all. And they did. They went and stole the whole camp, everything. They even stole a piano. Yeah. And, and, and they kitted themselves out from what they could, what they could, what they could nick from British. Uh, there was a Kiwi camp nearby, and I think there was an Aussie camp nearby as well. And, and, and they ended up with this fantastic camp. And, and they used to set them these regular missions and it was literally something like you'll go and steal well beg borrow or steal a cockerel the mudguard of a school bus and some women's underwear from a washing line and they had to go out and get it and, and you know there are these fantastic quotes again from guys at the time saying who would want to beg or borrow when you could steal and know you had the license to do so so you know why were they doing that well they were doing that to to teach self-reliance but also obviously if you're on missions behind enemy lines and bear in mind that you know the ideal the ideal fighting force raiding force sabotage force assassination force whatever your mission is for for sterling was four men and he said four men because you're so closely bound to each of your fellow operators that's that's the the, the bond that should never be broken but also you're very low profile and if you've only got four men you can send 10 20 groups of four men on it on behind you know, behind the lines operations at any one time and 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 by the laws of sheer numbers the majority should succeed whereas if you send one group of 20 times four you know if that group gets hit then then the mission's over so four man fighting units were the key and when you're deep behind enemy lines for weeks on end and you're hunted and all the rest of it you need to steal you need to beg borrow and steal and you need to be able to, willing to steal without the slightest uh, hint of remorse or, or moral problems and so, you know, these key lessons, you know, and, and again, it, there was a weeding out process, um, you know, embedded within that. Because if you had qualms about stealing, if you had qualms about big borrowing stealing, then you weren't the right kind of person for the outfit. And so reading about how they put all of that together when no one had done this before and then studying all the files and all the reports is absolutely fascinating. Um, and as I say, they... <laughs> When they were told to steal a camp, they even managed to steal the grand piano and, and have a concert to celebrate. So that kind of sums up the, 
the attitude uh, you know back then and i think it's still it's still pretty much the same today the incredible thing in that period too is coming out of the depression social cohesion had been so important in so many of these guys lives life had been hard and doing the right thing by the people around you would have been deemed to be so important so asking them instead to steal would have been incredible because so many of them would have come from worlds where it was looking after each other and not stealing from each other would have been so critical so the social transformation they were being asked to undertake i think would probably even be bigger now than where people are more individualistic yeah it, you're right uh, uh, so on the one hand it, it, there was a moral dimension to it absolutely you had to get people over that sense that it was wrong but 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 for many it was liberating you know mm. they, they found that 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 freedom liberating and also the other thing we, you know we've all got to bear in mind is that you know when churchill called for his special duty volunteers because that's what they were termed in the in first place they were the special duty volunteers Dunkirk had happened and in literally days after Dunkirk Churchill puts together this plan to set the lands of the enemy ablaze with behind the lines raiding operations never before been done complete anathema to the military top brass and he calls for these special duty volunteers but when he calls for them you know this is a war for the survival of civilization I think we tend to forget that I think we tend to forget what the stakes were you know Hitler was about enslaving um, anybody who wasn't an Aryan master race or killing off. That's what, that's what his grand plan was. So why is World War II so fascinating? It's so fascinating to me because this was a war for the survival of civilization and humanity. And if you look at those special duty volunteers who stepped forward in, in 1940, we're talking about now, yeah? And bear in mind in 1940, in June 1940, you know, Britain and the Connolly stood, stood alone and, and any... You could argue any right-minded individual should have should have looked at that situation and said it's hopeless. We've got to cut a deal with, with 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 Nazi Germany. Well, Churchill didn't, and he called for the special duty volunteers, and they stepped forward because they believed this was a war that had to be fought and had to be won, and that was an incredibly daunting thing to do at that time. Incredibly daunting, you know. The whole of Western Europe had fallen. France, with its massive army, and it's you know the French army was well well capable you know, had just been steamrolled over by the Nazi Blitzkrieg. And Hitler was hungry for a peace deal, you know. Hitler was calling for peace with, with Britain so he could turn his attentions to what his real aim was, which was, which was the Soviet Union, which was Lebensraum, living space, you know, to, to com- conquer the communist threat. And so to stand firm and then for these special duty volunteers to step forward was an incredible thing to have happened. And that meant that you had people come into these units who would, not just individualistics and mavericks, but they were driven by a moral imperative to fight for what was right. You know, you have everybody. You have people from top bankers and, and industrialists through to, you know, miners from Wigan, you know, artists, uh, ballet dancers, every single imaginable um, profession and background steps forward. And again, as, as, as Sterling said, you know, class is irrelevant in the SAS. There is no such thing as class in the SAS. There is command, there is a hierarchy, but it's merit above rank. You have to earn your rank and your position and your respect, it will not be given to you. And so, yeah, that, that they formed a very, very, very unique and special bond for all those reasons. And, 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 and again, you know, in terms of lessons today, that's absolutely key to modern day special forces operations. The, the, you talk to any of these guys who do modern forces mission 
uh, sorry, modern day missions, and you say, you know, what makes you stand firm, um, you know, in these seemingly impossible situations, which, you know, one's written, uh, you know, many books about, and they'll always say, you are fighting for the, for the man who stood on your shoulder, you know, to stand tall in his, in his view, you're fighting, and that's the reason you, you, you don't take a step back. Yeah, and that's one of the interesting differences. So, yeah, one of the other reasons I'm very interested in World War Two is I teach, uh, you know, at university of course called complex problem solving, and I make the point very early on that we can fix just about any terrifying situation, and the proof of that is World War Two for all the reasons you just listed. You know, the Brits really should have gone. Um, let's go for a deal, and they didn't. And Churchill asked for volunteers, and they turned up. And the volunteers weren't just competent, they were amazing. So when we get overwhelmed now by all the things we get overwhelmed by, whether it be climate change, whether it be the economy, whether it be COVID-19, in reality, none of these are as dangerous in the short term as World War II was to Britain and its empire in 1940-1941. And people just don't understand that really fundamental reality anymore. You're absolutely right. Uh, you fit the nail on the head, you know, and, and bear in mind, it wasn't, you know, the situation we faced in 39 and 40 wasn't, wasn't, wasn't simply potentially disastrous, cataclysmic for Britain, the empire. It, it, it was that for the world. And bear in mind, you know, Hitler had always intended to conquer America as well. It was all part of the big, you know, the, the grand plan. Once Russia had been, had been, uh, you know, steamrolled over and he only wanted war on one front, remember. He yep. did not want war on two fronts. So once Russia, once Britain signed a peace deal, uh, and once Russia was taken, he then turned his attentions back to Britain and America. So, you know, this was a this was a battle for world civilization. And, and you're right, the fact that we stood firm, and by we I mean all the Allies, and and we conquered and overcame, is is an incredible lesson for today. And you know, Churchill, it was probably. 48 if not 72 hours after Dunkirk so let's think about it Dunkirk the British Expeditionary Force has fought fantastically heroically but has been ultimately driven into the sea by by the Nazi blitzkrieg the French uh, Belgium and Dutch armies have fought magnificently but also been crushed Uh, we've had 330,000 odd uh, British French and allied soldiers plucked off the beaches miraculously uh, by by the fleet of little ships brought back to British shores, but we've left behind practically all of our armour and weaponry on those beaches, and much of which is taken by Germany's forces and, and adapted for German use. It is a crushing catastrophe, defeat and catastrophe. What does Churchill do? Well, it is it's seventy two hours after it could even be less than that. He announces the formation of the commandos, mm. and. Whilst it's not his idea, it's the idea of this incredibly maverick, brilliant individual from World War II, Colonel Clark. It's, it's his, his concept to form the commandos. And he has this idea because he's brought up in South Africa and he's actually been, as a child, subjected to a, a siege, a commando siege by the Boer commandos, who were these, you know, South African independent you know guerrilla fighters who tied down many 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 more british troops in south africa and he's seen them at work and he thinks this is what we need now to to strike back against the supposedly invincible nazi war machine and and so 
he goes to Churchill and, and, and he has a back of an envelope proposal for forming the British commandos, the version of, you know, the British version of Boer commandos. And Churchill, Churchill, who's also got experience of South Africa, of course, you know, he was captured there by the Boer commandos and held prisoner and escaped. And Churchill wholeheartedly embraces the idea. And not only that, he says, you will get a raid to French shores to attack the Germans within the month. So that's giving him about three weeks to do it. Mm. And at that stage, he's got no men, he's got no equipment, and none of them have ever been trained. And it's that kind of attitude, you know, that kind of indomitable spirit, that, that kind of faith in the human condition, that human beings can do the most amazing things when they have the will and they have the mindset that encapsulates that moment and encapsulates the whole the fantastic story of World War Two, which is a which is a tale of, of of good overcoming evil against impossible odds. And you're right, you know, in terms of the lessons for today, we need to keep remembering that lesson because when humankind is faced with seemingly insurmountable problems like global warming or COVID nineteen, these things can be dealt with. And it's an incredible thing. So the commandos are a brilliant example. You couldn't doubt their courage, but they'd been trained to work in reasonably big units. That worked out very quickly in North Africa not to be useful. So Sterling took it to the next level. Okay, what we need is smaller and smaller groups of people who can disappear in a sand dune. So this idea that initially you give people who are very brave the chance to work together and you just keep asking more and more of them. Okay, you're not going to get to work in a big group. You're not going to have clear direction. Missions aren't going to be relatively short. They're going to get longer, more chaotic. There's going to be less of you, and you're all going to take on more responsibility. And what is incredible is it shows that people who are both courageous, independent, and intelligent can face almost anything in a small group they trust. Yeah, absolutely. And, and you know, it also shows that education is not, and, and by education I mean classic school and university education is 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 not a divider between between men at arms so what i mean by that is you know you look at a lot of the guys who are fighting in world war ii and it's the same today i've got a very good friend who's a former sas guy no education left school i think with a cycling proficiency certificate and it's no fault of his own you know he was abandoned at birth by his parents brought up in an abusive foster home went into the care system abused in the care system but his saving grace was finding his way into, into the army at age 17, passed selection and, and, and joined the SAS. And, and the key point about that guy, and it's the same throughout the generations of special forces, is no education, no classical formal education, hyper-intelligent. He actually had his IQ taken by one of his care home workers because, in fact, she was his psychologist because she saw something in him. His IQ was off the scale. Yeah. You know, so these guys who whether it's World War II or through to the modern day, it does not matter the level of education, classic education they have. In terms of their animal in intellect, in terms of their ability to think outside the box, those, those things are off the scale, and, and they had to be, because you had to wage warfare in the most unconventional, unmentionable, and unthinkable ways. And the reason that was key was because if you could take on the enemy in the way least expected, then that's where the defences were going to be were going to be least least strong. So there's a great saying in 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 special forces. I don't know if it was if it was around in World War II, but it's certainly very much in use today, which is expect the unexpected, and and, and fight using the unexpected. 
And to do that, you don't need a classic education. You need a mind that can think unconventionally and, and, count, and, and countenance and take seriously things which others might see as impossible. And that is a kind of unifying thread to, to all these operations from, from World War II through to today and the kind of operators involved. They've all got that ability, in my way of thinking, to think of the most unorthodox way of attacking a situation and then to actually take that seriously and then to take that one step further and put a plan into action to make it happen and then execute it. It's very interesting listening to your books, how many of the original officers either had had a really privileged upbringing in the UK or had come out of sort of military families in India. So you get this incredible combination of two very different groups of officers, some that always thought they were going to be military, some that really only ended up in it because of World War II. And then, like you said, you know, the enlisted personnel came from almost everywhere. The only continuity really seems to be, to me, the one that still exists today, and that is they've all got this level of intensity of they're looking to wring as much life out of life as possible is their default setting. And if war is what they have to do, then they are going to wring as much life out of war as they can as well. Yeah. So you've got, as you know, you've got, you know, born to the landed gentry, dukes and lords on one end of the spectrum, and at the other end of the spectrum, you've got, you've got street fighters and brawlers who've been busted out of jail to, to join these units and everything in between. And, and you know, as Sterling said, there is no class in the SAS, and so you have these guys, you know rubbing along brilliantly side by side maybe it couldn't it could happen in no other aspect of life maybe it could only happen in war in those special operations outfits but it's certainly it you know that that esprit de corps was was forged in world war ii and it, and it worked extremely well and it's lasted through to today and in terms of you know how how effective it was one one of the stories that kind of really encapsulates it for me and sticks in my mind is the story told in sas italian job so you've got Major Farron, who was born in India, brought up at the, uh, educated at the Bishop's Cotton School, which was a, you know, very nice colonial private school in India. Already an MC winner by the time he he well he's been he's supposedly been invalided out of the army because he's had so many injuries in the early stages of the war, but instead manages to to argue his way into the SAS and he parachutes into Italy against all orders. So he's told he can accompany his men on the aircraft. They're flying into assault this massive fortified Nazi headquarters, uh, you know, in, in an effort to break the on pass in, in the war in Italy. If you can, it's, it's a cut, cutting the head off the Nazi snake mission, uh, you know, cutting out their command and control. And he's flying in on the aircraft being told he can see his men off, but that's all he's then to return to base because he's too valuable to risk in the field. He's a major at that time. And Farron is the first to jump out the aircraft. Um, and he, he says to the air crew who are American, um, they're flying at C-47. He says, you'll go back to base and tell them that I was helping, I was dispatching my men through the door and I, I, I fell by accident. And so the report goes back to base and everyone believes he's dead. And then, of course, a few days later, he comes up, up on the radio saying he happened to have a parachute strapped on his back when he fell out and he's miraculously survived. And now he's way behind enemy lines and there's no way they can get him back again. So he may as well command his men and, and go in on the attack. You know, and... The, the, the key thing about that mission is who who makes up the assault force to 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 attack that that German uh, 
14th Army headquarters, which is, it's a kind of where Eagles Dare mission. It's a massive fortified pair of uh, Italian villas, you know, with a thousand uh, German troops uh, protecting them. Well, he's got 40 men, Roy Farinas, 40 SAS. He's got Captain Mike Lees, who's an SOE guy, uh, whose who's nickname is Wild Man, who's a very accomplished commander, but again, from a very, very well-to-do English background. And then beneath them, they've got you know, a ragtag band of Italian partisans, many of whom are communists. They've got some former Spanish uh, Civil War veterans. They've got a couple of French foreign legionnaires. They've got a Dutch army cap sergeant who somehow managed to find his way to Italy to fight called Fritz Schnapper. And they've got around about 100 former Russian prisoners of war who've escaped from Italian custody and German custody, made their way into the mountains and, and, and decided to fight. And somehow from that, they meld together this, this fighting force that go in and execute the attack on the German army headquarters and pull it off against all odds. You know, again, it's thinking the unthinkable. That mission was, it was a suicide mission. End of story. You know, you've got a trek for, for 24 hours at least through enemy territory, attack and army headquarters with a thousand German troops in defence, with anything up to heavy armour, uh, with a with hundred raiders, this ragtag band, and then somehow get out, get out again alive. The idea being, the concept being, you know, to go in there and kill the top German generals who were commanding the war in Italy. Uh, and they pull it off. And that defines um, the, the egalitarian spirit. And the other thing that I always point out when, when I talk about that story is that if you were an Italian partisan, uh, well, it's, let, let's say if you're an SAS operator in uniform and you were captured, you would probably get taken as a prisoner of war and you would probably be afforded the protections under the Geneva Convention. If you were an Italian partisan and you were captured, you would get tortured and executed or horribly. Your whole family would get, if they could find them, would get tortured and executed horribly. And your whole village would get tortured and executed horribly and burnt to the ground because that's what Hitler had ordered. He said, if any Italian partisan operations take place, you will kill 10 Italians for one German. And so to get those, 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 those Italian partisans to the pitch of self-belief where they believed in this few dozen British and Allied commandos above the threat that they faced if they were caught and their family faced is absolutely extraordinary. That, that, that ability to inspire belief in people, you know, gold dust. Imagine, imagine the stakes they're, they're facing and to get them to believe in themselves and the mission to such a degree that they went ahead and pulled it off. And that encapsulates the kind of spirit that, that they built in World War II. Yeah, it's incredible. Like, if I remember the details right, Lees, as they're walking in towards the Gothic line, what he's got malaria or something, doesn't he, on the march on the way in? So yeah. he, he is sick as sick. Farron has had a piper dropped in, so it's obvious that this is a British attack, so the Italians hopefully get less reprisal. And, you know, Farron's body is not in a great state. And that then makes a lot more sense after reading your book about, you know, the great escapes that some of these guys did, reading about Farron's injuries in Greece and then making it from, you know, Greece to North Africa on a boat where, you know, at the last moment they end up building a distillation device to get fresh water or they're all going to die. So this yeah. guy's body by 22 is already in pretty crappy state. Yeah. 
and yet to survive the rest of all. And what, he ended up in Canada and living a long, long life, didn't he, from memory? He did, yeah. So Farron ended up moving to Canada and actually becoming a newspaper magnate and then a politician, and he did, um, you know, raised a family there and did very well. I'm, I'm, I'm in touch with his son, who, who's been really helpful with me in terms of writing the books. But yeah, you know, they, they go ahead and, and, and bear in mind also, as Farron's not just parachuted in against all orders, so he already faces a court-martial. But as they're setting out to do the raid, he gets an order um, arrive via radio and then via a runner, literally at the 11th hour, telling them to cancel the mission. And he reads the order and he looks at uh, Mike Lees, Captain Mike Lees, who's the SOE guy, special operations executive guy on the mission, who's got who's malaria racked from previous Yugoslav operations. And he thinks, well, Mike Lees is in no fit state to make a decision on this. So on his own, unilaterally, he just decides that the, 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 the order was never received, folds it up, puts it in his pocket and they crack on with the mission. You know, that 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 kind of that kind of spirit is just. Um, well it's it's priceless and that 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 self-belief um that carried us through the second world war from the very darkest hour to the hour of 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 liberation victory it's quite incredible because it really helps to explain why the sas has disbanded so fast after the end of world war ii because they have annoyed the conventional hierarchy to such a degree yeah, it's interesting at the beginning of the war, and this is one of the most remarkable things I think you've found out through your research, and that is that the Special Air Service as a name and as a unit existed before David Sterling you know, snuck into headquarters in Egypt on his crutches. The fact that there was an initial raid into Italy and then you know, later on a raid into France where the name was changed again because it was now in use in North Africa is absolutely incredible. Do you want to talk a little bit about this first raid? Because getting that first raid into Italy up when you don't seem to have someone like Sterling to go and do the dash and dare seems, you know, really remarkable. Yeah. So, so, so the book that I published last year is called SAS Shadow Raiders. And it's the story, it's the story of, it's the untold origin story of the SAS. And so what happened was this straight after Dunkirk, uh, Colonel Clark uh, goes to Churchill and, and, and proposes the commandos are formed. So a, a force of raiders to strike back against Nazi Germany. To, and really, truth be told, the strategic value of those early missions was negligible. You know, a few raids on the enemy coast were not going to determine the outcome of the war. But that's not what it was about. It was about showing that we had the, the, the guts and the spirit and the wherewithal to fight. And it was about showing the British people that we could do that. And on the Commonwealth as well, you know, it was, it was, to, it was to say, no, we are not down and out. And so the, the, the call went out for special service, um, special duty, special service raiders and volunteers flocked to the call. And that's how they were known. The commanders were known initially as the special service operation, uh, operators, raiders. And, Churchill had called 10,000 of these to be raised by, by the end of the year. So we're talking June 1940. Now, you want to know why the special, special forces were so unpopular? Well, for a start, in 1940, um, you know, following Dunkirk and defeat, all senior uh, military commanders were preparing for, for the defence of Britain against Operation Sea Line, and the, you know, the, the invasion by Nazi Germany forces. The whole mindset was totally defensive in every way, shape or form. And Churchill wasn't like that. Churchill wanted to go on the offensive. And he said, come hell or high water, whatever it costs, we will. And so he called for 10,000 special duty 
special service volunteers to be raised. And the British military didn't want to do it. They didn't. They said, we don't have the airframes, we don't have the boats, we don't have the kit, we don't have the weaponry, we can't spare the men. At every stage that they tried to obfuscate it, but, uh, you know, he was absolutely determined. And he, Churchill had witnessed the first ever, well, not personally witnessed, but he read reports about the first ever use of airborne forces. And, of course, it was the Germans who used glider-borne troops, but also parachutists, to seize the Belgium forts, which enabled them to to circumvent the French Maginot line, yeah? So they dropped parachutists and glider-borne troops on the Belgian fort, surprise attack and taken them, and that's how they'd broken through. Churchill had been mightily impressed. And he said, I also want 5,000 airborne commandos raised and trained. And because Clark, the founder of the commandos, wanted to distinguish his airborne forces from his landborne forces, into that name, special service volunteers, he inserted the word air. So you then had special air service volunteers. And so the name special air service was born in kind of September 1940. That's what they were. They were the special air service volunteers. And they trained in, a, in, in, in an air base just outside of Manchester in the north of England. And they, you know, they had circus acrobats and anybody with any vague experience of doing something at heights and they, and they made up the craft and the art of parachuting from initially these Whitley bombers, these ancient obsolete bombers, which were not built for parachuting duties at all. And you, would, you plummeted through what was originally the, the belly gun turret, which they'd removed and replaced with an iron tube. You dropped through there one by one, risked knocking yourself out uh, by banging your forehead on the floor in the process. But that's how they pioneered airborne operations. And so... They raised the force of the first 500, the first battalion of special air service volunteers, troops. And that's where the whole name began. And then having you know, perfected the art as much as they could, they needed to prove it in practice. They needed an operation. You know, and Churchill wanted to prove you know, against all the naysayers, against all those in high command who said you know, airborne operations will, will, are not necessary and will never work. And so they... They dreamed up this operation. It was, it was codenamed uh, Operation Colossus. And it was to be in Italy in February 1941. And, and the idea was to fly in Whitley bombers um, all across occupied Europe and drop parachutists onto the Apulian aqueduct, which carried fresh drinking water from the, Apulian mount, uh, uh, from, from the mountains in Italy to the coastal, the seaports of Taranto and Brindisi, where uh, the, the Italians had their, their, their main fleets of warships based and from where they were sending men and material to the North Africa campaign. And the idea in blowing up the, the, the aqueduct was to deprive around about 3 million Italian and German uh, troops and civilians of drinking water so that they would either die of thirst, shutting down the ports, or have to you know, flee the area as refugees. And so they did. They, 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 the Special Air Service volunteers, 36 of them, under command of a major, Tag Pritchard, uh, flew in the, the Whitley bombers and they dropped over the Apulian aqueduct, Trigino, and uh, they set their charges and blew it up. They, they pulled off the mission. And so, you know, by February 1941, on one level, 
we'd proven that you could do the most extraordinary. I mean, and bear in mind how far that was behind enemy lines. You're talking hundreds and hundreds of kilometers behind enemy lines. And the reason you couldn't do it as a seaborne operation was because it's right in the center of Italy. So you couldn't land troops on the coast and infiltrate to target that way. It was just too far. You would have got, you'd, you'd have got seen and captured. And so they had to drop by airborne means. That was the only way to do it. And so, yeah, that was basically the, the birth of the Special Air Service. And that was the first ever operational airborne mission by Allied forces. It was February 1941. And the fantastic thing with it is Tag Pritchard is basically, by special operations terms, an old man. He's like 30 at the time of this or something, isn't he? Yeah. And Tag Pritchard, you know, big guy, um, army boxing champion. You could argue not the physique at all for plummeting through a Whitley's, uh, you know, that would have um, been terrifying the idea that he could get stuck and yeah, yeah, yeah. he's making it up as they go along. And the fact that, you know, they managed to walk their way out, but because everyone thought they'd failed, the submarine didn't pick them up. So the majority of them ended up in captivity and started making a speciality of breaking out, you know, adding to the whole thing of, well, we're not just going to be annoying when we're blowing stuff up. We're going to be annoying to manage for the rest of the war. So was it yeah. Tag Pritchard who was, you know, given permission to go out and do recon for a, con- a camp commandant as the Allies were entering Italy and just went out, phoned up and said, well, I've done the recon and now I'm escaping by now. <laughs> a, a wonderful yeah. SAS attitude. They were sadly all captured and partly they were captured because due to faulty um, aerial, aerial photography, well, not faulty aerial photography, the photography was fine, but the analysis of those photogra- those photographs uh, the conclusion was reached that the mission had not been successful and the aqueduct hadn't been blown up, which it got. In truth, it had been blown up. And so they, the, the mission was deemed a, a, a failure. And so the submarine, which was supposed to pick the raiders up from Italian shores, was cancelled and they all got captured. And then they made a speciality, as you said, of, of, of escaping and, and making life hell for the enemy, even in captivity. But the, the legacy then of the SAS after that was that the man who, the man behind all of this, the man whose brainchild it really was, who was Clark, Dudley Clark, then is redeployed to North Africa. And he's in North Africa running a deception operation for British forces there. So they're dropping dummy parachutists in the desert and they're, they're, they're sending guys in, 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 in SAS uniform around the bars and the brothels in Cairo talking freely about airborne operations where they know that Italian and German spies will overhear them. The idea being to make the Italians in particular believe that there were British airborne commandos in North Africa, deployed in North Africa and carrying out operations to spread fear in the ranks. And whilst Clark is there doing that, he meets David Sterling and they become friends. And Sterling shares with Clark his idea of a deep desert raiding operation a deep desert raiding force small scale deep behind the lines using the desert to circumnavigate german front lines and attack their airfields in particular to try to uh, get rid of the germans air support superiority in the region and clark thinks it's a wonderful idea and he says but to give bo- to give body to, to to my lies to my deception operation and to give heritage and credibility to what you're proposing take on the name of a unit that already exists so you know call it the Special Air Service. He said, I mean, Italians were already aware the Special Air Service operated in Italy because of the Trigino Aqueduct raid. So it will work, it will work wonders for the both of us. And so that's what Sterling did. He took this kind of, this already formed mantle of, 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 
of, of airborne operations and airborne history and turned it to their own ends. And bear in mind the first, the first ever uh, North African SAS mission, the first one by Sterling and, and, and Blair Main and, and, the, and the key founders, the originals, was an airborne raid. It was Operation Squatter and they were dropping by parachute and raid enemy airfields. It was only later when they realized how uh, fraught with danger and risky parachute-borne operations were that they resorted to going in by vehicle and, and eventually by jeep. Yeah, it's an incredible thing when people write about the early period there in North Africa that you've got Sterling coming up with the crazy ideas of, well, let's leap out of trucks to practice the parachute landings. And you've got Lewis doing all the physical training to get these people just so physically robust they you know, start to believe they can survive nearly anything. Sort of had that balance of absolute creativity but also absolute discipline. And you didn't have to have it all in one person. You just let people do the bit they're brilliant at. Yeah. And then, of course, you had Maine, Blair Paddy Maine, who really, he really is the t towering figure of the SS in World War II. And he's so little known about, you know, because once Sterling's camp captured in February 43, Rommel had vowed to get the Phantom Major. That's how the Germans had started to refer to Sterling. And once he's captured in 43, it's then uh, Maine who commands the SAS for the rest of the war and, and shapes it and nurtures it. And, you know, he is the, he is the ultimate raider. He's the ultimate operator in the ultimate raider. And he was a man who, you know, men would follow into the jaws of hell because they would believe that Maine could get them out again alive. He had that ability to do that. And if you talk to people who were under his command, they'll say, if they try and explain to you what that, you know, what, what that boiled down to, he had this ability to assess a threat in a split second, in, in, in a fraction of a moment and blink of an eye, and decide whether it was a threat they should take on and engage or run away to live and fight another day. That was one of the, the key things that Maine had and which gave his men such confidence in his command. And again, and you know, normalizing that it's fine to do that, that you don't have Absolutely. to be in every fight. If you can't Absolutely. win this fight, hide. There'll be a fight yeah. for tomorrow. Yeah, absolutely. Nail on the head. So again, that's the other thing that the concept that they pioneered. He who shoots and runs away lives to fight another day. You know, shoot and scoot operations, hit and run. You're not there to stand and fight. You're there to carry out the assassination, to carry out the sabotage, to, to take out the one key target and then to get away alive and do more another operation and another operation and another operation. In, in the Nazi Hunters, the book I wrote about the operation in, in the Vogue Mountains in France in, in 44, and then uh, the, the secret SAS Nazi hunting unit. But in, in the operation in, in, in the Vogue Mountains, where, you know, st steeply forest-clad mountainsides, winding roads, perfect for sabotage and ambush operations. But what they used to do, they'd see a convoy coming, they'd let all the trucks go past, crammed full of infantry, they'd wait for the staff car. They'd shoot the hell out of the staff car, kill all the officers, and then get in their jeeps and hightail it out of there. They would not stand and fight. But what they were doing is they were, they were hunting down the top enemy officers. Because if you are rank and file in the German military and you start to believe that not even your most senior commanders are safe from attack and, and being killed, what kind of, you know, imagine the, the impact of that on your morale. And that is exactly what they set out to do. So 
it was a very, very different way of fighting war. And it wasn't gentlemanly. This was not gentlemanly. That's a big point too of once we're in the Vogue area in France is, you know, the SAS have been doing this for so long. The Germans are desperate. Everyone's in a pressure cooker and they're still using these incredible tactics, but realizing they're cut off in a forest and maybe resupply can work and the commando orders in practice, if they're caught, they're dead. And, and this ends up being the reason why they end up hunting Nazis because of the number of them that were captured and killed out of hand under the commando order. So it's almost like the whole war builds up to this final few months of just how much pressure can the SAS bear and how much pressure can they put on the Germans? And it's, you know, that's a striking final phase for any unit. So after that, for the unit to have been wrapped up must have been absolutely crushing. Yeah. So, you know, by summer 44, really, you know, senior commanders at the SCS know about Hitler's commando order. So in uh, 40, 41, 42, Hitler drafts an order which basically says any, any commandos or special forces caught behind the lines, and I'm paraphrasing, uh, will be given no quarter. They'll only be kept alive for long enough to be interrogated by the Gestapo, after which they'll be executed out of hand. And you know, any army commander, German army commander, who doesn't abide by this order will be prosecuted themselves. So basically the German army had, had been given an order to, to kill any captured commandos and special forces. Well, by summer 44, the SAS pretty much know this. They've, they've had reports from people who've escaped and, and you know, they're, they're pretty much in the picture. So they know largely that any of their number who are captured face a horrific, um, you know, uh, fate, torture very likely and then execution. Now, that's illegal uh, under the rules of war. The, these are men, okay, they're operating behind the lines, but that's not relevant they're in uniform they're members of an armed force and a, a, you know, a bona fide armed force of, of, of a military nation and, the, and they need to be afforded the, the the protections of the rules of war hitler's given an order that they won't be why did he do that well there's a lot of evidence and, and it, it's it, it's a true it's a truism that for whatever reason hitler saw commando and sas operations behind the lines operations as distinctly against him. They were somehow a, a, an insult to his personality, his command, you know. And I know that we, you know, in Operation Anthropoid, for example, we assassinated Reinhard Heydrich, the Heydrich. Um, political uh, commander in Czechoslovakia at the time, you know, the man who was a monster architect of the Holocaust, you know, any number of other um, uh, things you can accuse him of. And it was an SOE, Special Operations Executive Mission, that that led, led to his assassination. So, you know, you could, and the SAS very much did have this policy of cutting the head off the Nazi snake. So targeting senior commanders for, for being killed. But this isn't, you know, operations in uniform by, by soldiers of a bona fide military nation are completely legal. The Germans themselves had taken legal advice on this when they started doing airborne operations at the start of the war. And they'd, they'd come to the same conclusion. These operations are legal. So Hitler's commando order was out and out an illegal, uh, you know, act uh, against all the, all the laws of war. And by summer 44, SAS commanders know this order's in place. And so they know that they're men who, who are 
been captured are very unlikely to come home, and very few did. I think it's something like 100 were captured uh, post-D-Day. Uh, it's over 100, in fact, and only six came home. So you can see very, very few were spared. And so they know that, that, that they are, they're, they're not just fighting for victory, they're fighting for their very survival. And the Germans, on the other hand, they're fighting for their survival too, because they know they're losing. And so it, there's this pressure cooker on both sides. And, and, it, and it does lead to the, to the formation at the end of, of the war of the SAS Nazi hunting unit, because the SAS commanders, Maine, Colonel Franks and others have vowed that those members who've been executed and tortured horribly and executed will be avenged and they will hunt down the perpetrators of those crimes. And that must have been terrifying for the Germans where the SAS were literally sneaking into other country sectors in Germany, getting their intel and then doing snatch and grab raids and dragging people back to the British sector. It was yeah. very much in the unit's tradition of we're just getting the job done immaterial of how. Very much so. So, the, you know, the SAS war crimes investigation team, as they were formerly known, but not for very long, because, you know, they were formed in, in May 45, dispatched to Germany to hunt down, the, you know, the Nazi killers. And then October 45, the SAS is disbanded. You know, it's no more. It's gone. You know, overnight, pretty much, it no longer exists. And so you have the war crimes hunting team in, based in Gaggenau in Germany, suddenly of a unit of a regiment that no longer exists so so what you know that it it, it stops that in theory then it stops it's done it's finished but but from churchill downwards there was an absolute determination that it would continue and so at that stage the secret hunter they became the secret hunters the ss war crimes investigation team became the secret hunters they became a dark unit that on on paper in theory didn't exist but in fact carried on hunting Nazi war criminals right through to the summer of 1948. And they did so hiding in plain sight. You know, they, they used SAS jeeps, they wore SAS uniforms, they had the wing dagger, cat badge and beret, and they carried on doing exactly what they'd been doing before, as if they were still a completely bona fide unit. With this budget, which was massaged out of the war office by a former Russian prince called Yuri Galitsyn, he was now um, on, on, on the official British war crimes investigation team, which was completely, you know, it's completely black budget. And, and that's how determined they were to make sure that justice would be done. And, they, and that you're absolutely right. In terms of the tactics they used on the ground, it was exactly as they'd fought during the war. They got no permission from anywhere. They went wherever they wanted in their jeeps, using the back roads, circumventing the checkpoints. They snatched the wanted from under the noses of, of their families or or often the, 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 the occupying powers, bought, dragged them back to the Villa Degla basement and, and extracted their confessions, and they did it very, very successfully. One of the most successful war crimes hunting units ever. Yeah, and that's the irony of it. This wasn't a bunch of outraged lawyers cleaning up the mess after. It was a bunch of soldiers who thought the war was going to end when they were dead, or they won. So the idea that they've been now caught up in this complete other side of the war. And yeah, there's a wonderful description that's been written up by a couple of people about what was it, an SAS officer and a sergeant discovered one of the concentration camps just inside of Germany from memory. So, yeah, there was yeah. that personal side of it too. Not only had they been under the commando order, they'd also discovered one of the concentration camps. Yeah, so um, in... November, December 44, 
um, as, as the Vogue Mountains fell, you know, Hitler's last bastion of defense of the fatherland and American and British and French and, and allied forces took the, took the Vogue. Um, on one of the high mountains in the Vogues, that there, there, there's, there's a former ski resort. It was a ski resort before the war uh, called Natzweiler. And um, the Germans uh, in their wisdom, um, the Nazis in their wisdom, I shouldn't really say Germans, um, you know, transformed it into a concentration camp. And the reason they built the concentration camp there was partly because there's this red um, sandstone that, that, that you quarry from that area. And Hitler wanted to um, use it to build uh, monumental buildings in Berlin with this kind of red sandstone face. And the, 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 the workforce, the slave labor force that they, they gathered in the concentration camp was, uh, you know, Jews, uh, resistance, so members of the French and Belgium and other resistance units who, who were classed as Nacht and Nebel prisoners, Nacht and Nebel being German for night and fog. So these were the prisoners who were to get the very, very worst treatment. They wore an N and N badge to show they were Nacht and Nebel and to disappear without trace, hence night and fog. So your families would never know what happened to you. The idea being it was the ultimate um, deterrent to resistance operations. But then when you know special forces and commandos started causing havoc behind the lines, they too became classed as Nacht and Nebel troops. And some of them ended up uh, in Natzweiler and, 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 and or dying in Natzweiler, as did some of the special operations executive agents. And that camp, Natzweiler, was actually liberated by Prince Yuri Yurka Galitsin, who was this Russian uh, prince who had become a captain in, in, in the British military and had been in the Special Operations Executive in World War II. He liberated that camp and it's the first ever concentration camp found by the Allies. And so he knew personally that, you know, what, what had happened in, in these places of horror and darkness. But he also knew who had ended up in them, including some of our own uh, bravest of the brave. And so, you know, he, when he took evidence from that Swiler to the SAS commanders and said, look, I think this is where some of your, your missing and disappeared have ended up. You know, that was extremely powerful because, you know, these people were personally, deeply personally motivated. Yeah, you've just given them a brand new moral mission. Like one yeah. job is nearly over and now, well, there's another moral ledger that needs to be sorted yeah yeah absolutely incredible well gentlemen i hate to butt into your interesting discussion but i think it is time to wrap up i think it kind of goes without saying the importance of telling these stories and damien you are an incredible storyteller in your writing goes without saying but also just verbally has been fascinating to listen to you here so thank you both for having such an engaging discussion but um thank you very much damien for joining us it's been absolutely fascinating yeah it's been a pleasure really enjoyed it thank you damien and can i put my hand up and suggest that the next book you write you read your own book because that would be awesome from a blind perspective yeah it's a good idea i'll, I'll, I'll put that to the uh, i'll put that to the publisher my friend yeah you can let him know you've already got one vote and i've bought a lot of your right. books so that's more than one vote all right man i'll, I'll suggest it yeah <laughs> This would be Thank the second audiobook that, that David will have will have inspired. <laughs> hey, sorry, to be pattern. read. By, yeah, yeah, yeah. To be read by their own authors. Um, you've got a pattern of that now. Yeah. <laughs> All good. Thank you, gentlemen, and thank you, audience. Thank you. Hello, listeners. 
If you're enjoying our podcast, please subscribe and like our Facebook page. Search for Blind Insights with David Olney. Also, don't forget that we have merchandise. Thank you to the OzCast Network. Peace out. Thank you.